A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Radio Westeros, episode 57. The Winds of Winter Primer, part 4. King's Landing. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me here today is Yog Boy. Hi everyone, we have an intriguing episode ahead as we focus on King's Landing in the Winds of Winter. Cersei is our main POV focus today, and we'll begin by recapping her story heading into the Winds of Winter. Next, we'll take a close look at the Kevin epilogue chapter, which is the final chapter before Winds, so lots of interesting details there. Then we'll focus on King's Landing in the Winds of Winter. We have much to say on what will surely be one of the primary settings of the next novel, so what can we surmise will happen there? And finally, we'll look at a set of King's Landing-related mysteries which could affect Cersei in Winds. Whatever happened to Bronn, Taina Merriweather, or Tyrek Lannister? And just who is this mysterious Rosby Ward mentioned in the text? So, for character analysis, recaps, and examination of pertinent mysteries, today's episode has it all. And before we begin today, it's time to thank our patrons. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons, and as always, we begin with thanks to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Pepper, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Wargarian, and Sister Winter. Thanks to all of you, and if you're interested in becoming a patron, check out our campaign at patreon.com slash radioestros to see what benefits you could gain by supporting us. And now, it's time to get started with part four of our Winds of Winter Primer. The rule was hers. Cersei did not mean to give it up until Tommen came of age. I waited. So can he. I waited half my life. She had played the dutiful daughter, the blushing bride, the pliant wife. She had suffered Robert's drunken groping, Jamie's jealousy, Renly's mockery, Varys with his titters, Stannis endlessly grinding his teeth, 
She had contended with John Aaron, Ned Stark, and her vile, treacherous, murderous dwarf brother, all the while promising herself that one day it would be her turn. If Marjorie Tyrell thinks to cheat me of my hour in the sun, she had bloody well think again. Cersei Lannister's arc in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, where we gained her point of view for the first time, seemed to be all about her descent into paranoia and fall from power. The final chapter of A Dance with Dragons, the Kevin Lannister epilogue, also seemed to leave little doubt that Lannister dominance in the capital was in serious jeopardy. In a world where power resides where men believe it resides, could the appearance that Lannister power in King's Landing is waning signal the end for Cersei? Well, it certainly seems that readers might be forgiven for wondering if Cersei has played the Game of Thrones and lost, and if the Winds of Winter will see a new power taking its place in King's Landing. And while that may ultimately prove to be the case, there are three main points which speak against Cersei being finished. The first, of course, is that we expect Cersei to be a long-game character. She has numerous threads as yet unfinished in her story, and we think it will take George the better part of the rest of the series to conclude them. Second, in the A Dance with Dragons epilogue, Kevin Lannister makes sure to point out to Mace Tyrell that his own power, based upon his daughter's marriage to Tommen, hinges upon Cersei's innocence. Were Tommen's mother to be found guilty of the charges that have been laid before her, which include treason and incest, leading to the conclusion that her children's father is Jaime and not Robert, Tommen himself would become a bastard with no claim to the throne. As Kevin baldly put it, if Tommen ceases to be a king, Marjorie will cease to be a queen. And thirdly, we have a hint from the Mercy preview chapter wherein Harry Swift visits Bravos, as discussed in Kevin's epilogue that Cersei remains in power in King's Landing some weeks after her uncle's death. And a hat tip to our friend Brynn Beefish for that. One of the Lannister guards who accompanied Sir Harris tells Wrath the Sweetling about the mission to the Iron Bank. If he goes back without the gold, the queen will have his head. So, having Lannister guards as his retinue on a mission for the crown, and the reference to the queen having some power over Sir Harris, the realm's master of coin, when he returns, are both potent indicators that Cersei has survived her trial and somehow contrived to regain her position of authority in the council. So, in order to understand how this might have happened and where Cersei might be heading in the Winds of Winter, let's begin with a recap of Cersei's arc in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. A Feast for Crows began with Cersei learning of Tywin's murder, which served to solidify her paranoia, not only about Tyrion, but about the Tyrells and even her own twin. A Feast for Crows is, at its core, about Cersei's isolation and the imprudent and ill-advised course she sets herself upon in her quest to become her father's successor in deeds as well as name. 
In her efforts to achieve those goals, as A Feast for Crows progressed, Cersei lurched, in Peter Baelish's words, from one idiocy to the next. Having her POV provides us with valuable insight into what she's done, confirmation that she planned Robert's death, and that Ned's death was in fact down to Joffrey's impulsive cruelty, what she fears, her brother Tyrion primarily, due to the Valencar prophecy, and what she plans to do in order to solidify her own power and, as she sees it, take up her father's mantle. From an internal perspective, we see that Cersei has inherited her father's absolute antipathy for being laughed at. Her first chapter in A Feast for Crows opens with her having a dream of sitting on the Iron Throne, which quickly devolves into Tyrion leading the court in laughing at her for sitting there naked. While this can be viewed as one of several places her walk of shame is prefigured, it's also highly revealing of what motivates her. She yearns for the adulation of men and also their subjugation. Other women, we'll see as her inner story progresses, are viewed as irrelevant at best, or as rivals. Much could be said about her isolation and loneliness. Is it a natural result of being an apex leader in feudal society, as Robert Baratheon confessed to Ned in A Game of Thrones? Or is it a result of her privileged upbringing by a stern and sociopathic father? We think there's probably... A little of the former and quite a bit of the latter going on in Cersei's personality, and these factors, as well as their results, are on full display in A Feast for Crows. The idiocies we and Littlefinger spoke of centre almost entirely on her efforts to bring down Marjorie Tyrell, who is, as Cersei sees it, her primary challenger, while attempting to consolidate her own power through a series of short-sighted promotions and schemes. Ultimately, these factors all lead to her arrest and imprisonment. But first, we observe, as we said, her descent into paranoia and the resulting poor decision-making. When Tyrion and Varys are discovered to be missing after Tywin's murder, she begins to see shadows in every corner. We learn, in bits and pieces, about the so-called Valonqar prophecy, in which an old woman in Lannisport stated to a young Cersei that she would have three children, who would all die, before she herself was killed. Here's the quote. Gold shall be their crowns, and gold their shrouds, she said. And when your tears have drowned you, the Valencar shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. This same old woman, known as Maggie the Frog, turns out to be Sybil Spicer's grandmother, an associate immigrant to Lannisport, who was in fact a meiji, or a wise woman, who practices blood magic, such as fortune-telling. The full reveal of her words to Cersei, and their impact on her life, is made over many chapters in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons we ultimately learn that Valencar is High Valyrian for Little Brother, and that Cersei assumes this is a reference to her hated brother Tyrion. 
Additionally, as well as predicting both Cersei's and her children's deaths, and the number of children Cersei would have, Maggie also correctly predicted the number of children Robert the King would have, indicating that she saw that Cersei's and Robert's children would not be children of their marriage, and that Cersei would indeed become a queen. Yeah, at the time, the young Cersei still harboured hopes of marrying Prince Rhaegar Targaryen and asked the witch, when will I wed the prince? Maggie's response, never you will wed the king, only served to reinforce her youthful aspirations to marry into the House of the Dragon, though the answer about their children made no sense to her. The answer to Cersei's question about whether she would be a queen is also highly pertinent to Cersei's A Feast for Crow's Ark. I said Maggie, queen you shall be, until there comes another, younger and more beautiful, to cast you down and take all that you hold dear. Cersei, in her paranoia, makes another error of interpretation. She assumes that the younger and more beautiful is a queen, another queen raised up in opposition to her. It turns out that this is exactly what leads her to her vendetta against Marjorie Tyrell that will play out in A Feast for Crows. Assuming that Marjorie, who is clearly younger and who Cersei fears is more beautiful, is this other. Cersei will concoct an elaborate, if not entirely subtle, plan to bring her rival down before the reverse can happen as predicted by Maggie. In fact, the interpretation of this part of the prophecy is riddled with assumptions which are highly revealing of Cersei's character. Besides that first, potentially critical error in comprehension, we're made privy to a fear that could have had no place in young Cersei's mind, but which begins to take center stage in the aging queen's psyche, leading up to her humiliation in the walk of shame the fear that her youth and beauty, things that she has based both her identity and her power upon, have forsaken her. And then there's the final bit of that phrase, to cast you down and take all that you hold dear. Cersei's assumption that this refers to her position as queen, and that the younger, more beautiful one, will be literally dethroning her and taking over her power and position is highly revealing of Cersei's self-concept and worldview. And yet, if we tie the two parts of the prophecy together, the younger, more beautiful one and the Valonqar, and think about what Cersei truly holds dear, besides power and herself, we might come up with a very different interpretation. Well, viewed from a purely emotional level, we know that Cersei loves her children and her twin, but the Valonqar portion predicts the premature deaths of her three children, which would leave Cersei with only Jaime. Viewed in that way, the younger, more beautiful, could be interpreted as a person who replaces Cersei in Jaime's affection, thus casting her down and taking all that she holds dear. We've suggested in the past that this person could be Brienne of Tarth with her semantic associations with the theme of beauty and her inner light, which so greatly outshines Cersei's. 
Yeah, we think that's a great connection, but we're going to leave that topic here and keep our focus now on how Circe's objectively incorrect interpretation of Maggie's words drives her actions in A Feast for Crows. Her efforts to forestall both the Valencar and the younger, more beautiful one manifest in her hatred of both Tyrion and Marjorie Tyrell. This hatred and fear in turn manifest as a series of decisions that lead directly to Cersei's arrest and imprisonment and ultimately her harrowing walk of shame. So let's review that series of decisions. In her second chapter in A Feast for Crows, the court attends Tywin's funeral. It's here that Cersei realizes that the High Septon was elevated by her brother Tyrion, whom she now holds responsible for the deaths of her mother, her son, and her father. It was a disquieting thought, it says. Moments later, she speaks to Lancel, who reveals that he's developed a relationship with this High Septon, sparking a fear in Cersei that her cousin may have confessed not only their physical relationship, but certain details about Robert's death and a skin of strong wine. The foundation of her ill-advised plot to assassinate the High Septon is laid. This chapter also introduces or reminds us of other characters and decisions that will continue to play a role in her arc as the book progresses. Taina Merriweather and Felice Stokeworth, Cersei's public rebuttal of Mace Tyrell's uncle Garth being master of coin and her selection of Giles Rosby for that role, Kyburn's revelations about a certain coin from Highgarden that he found in the jailer Rugen's sleeping cell and his request to conduct experiments on a dying Gregor Clegane deep in the dungeons and Cersei's rejection by her uncle Kevin which will ultimately lead to her further isolation in the capital. But before Kevin could leave the city to see his son Lancel wed to Amore Frey at Derry, Tommen was to be married to Marjorie. Over Cersei's objections, the wedding would proceed in order to cement the Lannister-Tyrell alliance. A much more modest affair than Marjorie's wedding to Joffrey, it would nonetheless serve to antagonize Cersei's suspicions of the Tyrells and her anger at the necessity to uphold the alliance, which, in her view, threatened her authority. Following Tywin's death, when he rejected her suggestion that he become Tommen's hand, and continuing through the events of the funeral and the wedding, Jamie becomes an irritant to Cersei. He is taking his duties as Lord Commander very seriously, which Cersei, like Tywin before her, views as a betrayal of his loyalty to House Lannister. Following one of their quarrels, we get this. How could I ever have loved that wretched creature? She wondered after he had gone. He was your twin, your shadow, your other half, another voice whispered. Once, perhaps, she thought, no longer. He has become a stranger to me. As Cersei completes her isolation by alienating both her uncle and her brother, two people upon whom she should have leaned for support, she continues to ally herself with people who are 
unsuitable, and ultimately untrustworthy. She calls upon the pyromancer Haline to burn the Tower of the Hand on the night of Tommen and Marjorie's wedding, ostensibly to ensure that her brother Tyrion wasn't lingering in a secret passage within, but really as a display of her own power. She thinks with satisfaction about all the men who served his hand during her lifetime, including her father. All of them are burning now. They are dead and burning, every one with all their plots and schemes and betrayals. It is my day now. It is my castle and my kingdom. Her brother had tried to dissuade her from this course of action, thinking, no doubt, about the hidden caches of wildfire around the city, of which only he was aware, as he had slain the pyromancers who laid them during the sack of the city 15 years previously. She tells him, Let all of King's Landing see the flames. It will be a lesson to our enemies. His response is on point, in a way she cannot comprehend. Now you sound like Ares. And how right he was, besides the obvious similarity to Ares's burn them all, in the same conversation she complained to Jamie that King's Landing was a cesspit, stating, After the war I mean to build a new palace beyond the river. Her inner thoughts continue, she had dreamed of it the night before last, a magnificent white castle surrounded by woods and gardens, long leagues from the stink and noise of King's Landing. Little do either Cersei or Jamie know that in the year before their birth, Ares, already showing signs of growing madness with a number of grandiose and unrealistic schemes, and according to the world book, offended by, quote, the stink of King's Landing, had declared his intent to build a, quote, white city entirely of marble on the south bank of the Blackwater Rush. And the comparisons to Ares don't end there. Later, recalling the expression on his sister's face as she watched the tower burn, standing, quote, with one hand on her breast, her lips parted, her green eyes shining. It says the sight had filled him with disquiet, reminding him of Ares Targaryen and the way a burning would arouse him. Jamie, as we'll see as A Feast for Crows continues, has real reservations about his sister, her choices and the way she exercises power. Cersei, at the same time, falls prey to a growing paranoia born of her obsession with the Valonqar prophecy and her self-inflicted isolation. Yeah, and we all know that the hallmark of the latter part of Ares's reign was extreme paranoia. And we'll keep an eye on these parallels later when we discuss where we think Cersei might be heading in the Winds of Winter. In A Feast for Crows, following Tommen's wedding, Cersei makes moves to consolidate her power on the small council, having, quote, uprooted every rose and all those beholden to her uncle and her brothers. She names Harris Swift, her uncle Kevin's father-in-law, as her hand, thinking he is more hostage than hand, ensuring her uncle's good behavior as she sees it. She also embarks on a friendship with Tina Merriweather, who Jamie reminds her is spying for Marjorie, 
This amuses Cersei as she thinks she has turned Taina to her own side with clever hints that she will see to the advancement of Lady Merryweather's son and husband. Jamie is dismayed by her association with the woman, with her elevation of the Kettleblacks, whom little do they suspect are spies for Peter Baelish, as well as the inexperienced Orane Waters, and Kyburn, rejected by the Citadel and formerly a member of the Brave Companions, who are responsible for the loss of his hand. Cersei scorns his objections and blunders on. The High Septon, Tyrion's creature, as she calls him, dies. We learn later that he was smothered by Osney Kettleblack at her behest. She makes mock of Jaime in a small council meeting, consciously attempting to undermine him as any sort of threat or challenge to her power. She ignores both the emissary of the Iron Bank and the growing number of sparrows in the city, and, with Kyburn, concocts a plan to remove the new Lord Commander of the Night's Watch from power by sending a group of Night's Watch recruits to the wall with an embedded assassin. And this will become part of a larger plan to bring down Marjorie, with her family either returned to Highgarden or heading to Storm's End under the command of Lord Mace to besiege Stannis's Castellan, Sir Gilbert Faring. The little queen would be isolated in King's Landing with only her brother Loras at her side. When news arrived of Ironborn raids on the Shield Isles, Cersei would be quick to capitalise on the Tyrell anxiety for their home territory by refusing to release Paxter Redwine from a planned assault on Dragonstone, thus inspiring Loras's mission to storm the ancient Targaryen stronghold. And with the Redwine fleet safely sailing back west and Loras away at Dragonstone, Cersei would be free to spring her trap. Sir Osney Kettleblack would be tasked with seducing Marjorie and then confessing his crime, at which point he would declare his desire to take the black and go to the wall as the assassin in the group, as suggested by Kyburn. In the meantime, she also sends Jamie away to the Riverlands to take control of Harrenhal and oversee the capitulation of Riverrun, essentially completing her own isolation as she endeavours to do the same to Marjorie. A Feast for Crows continues with her using Kyburn as a tool to dispose of inconvenient members of her court, from her maid Sunel, whom she suspected of spying, to Felice Stokeworth, whose crime was being married to a man foolish enough to challenge Tyrion's erstwhile ally Bronn of the Blackwater to single combat and being killed for his trouble. Cersei continues to encourage Kyburn's dark experiments in the dungeons, which will culminate in the creation of Sir Robert Strong. Speaking of which, also during this time, she will send Sir Balon Swan to Dorne with what is alleged to be Gregor Clegane's head in a box for Prince Doran. If one's keeping count of Kingsguard, Tommen, once the object of her paranoid fears and guarded night and day by loyal white cloaks, now has only his food taster, Boris Blount, Marin Trant, 
and Osmond Kettleblack as guards. Though Cersei takes the step of making Osney, Tommen's sworn shield, her plotting has left both herself and her son with only men of dubious courage or loyalty to protect them. And she isn't done yet, as she also takes the incredible decision to assent to the rearming of the faith in exchange for the new High Septon, a man colloquially known as the High Sparrow, forgiving the crown's debt to the faith and giving their blessing to Tommen. And then, when Lord Giles Rosby, her master of coin, finally coughed his last, she shuffled her hand, Sir Harris, sideways into that role and named Taina Merriweather's husband, Lord Orton, as Tommen's new hand. Because the plot against Marjorie wasn't proceeding quickly enough, and proving the truth of Jamie's thoughts that she lacks judgment and has no patience, Cersei finally succumbed to Osney Kettleblack's demands that she reward him for his services and took him as a lover. And then things began to move very quickly. Marjorie and her cousins were arrested upon Osney's accusation, and ten men were also seized by Sir Osford Kettleblack's gold cloaks on charges of being involved in what amounted to a sex ring in the Maiden Vault. Cersei also allowed Orain Waters to launch her new ships, ostensibly as a deterrent to Mace when he inevitably returned to the city to defend his daughter. By now, Cersei had allied herself firmly with the Kettleblacks and the Merryweathers while estranging every other possible ally she had. And so, when she graciously declared that she would visit the High Septon to demand Marjorie's release, she had very few people to advise her against it or to protect her. As it happened, her tall Osney had broken under torture and by the time she arrived at the Sept of Baylor, implicated her not only in the plot against Marjorie, but also in the previous High Septon's death and of being his own lover. Cersei is peremptorily seized and imprisoned and the Merryweathers, who knew all about her plotting, flee, while the Kettleblacks are summarily imprisoned lest they attempt to save their brother. At the end of A Feast for Crows, Cersei is alone with no allies and accused of murder, treason and fornication. Even her brother Jamie, receiving a letter from her at Riverrun begging for help, turns away from her. Cersei has but two chapters in A Dance with Dragons. In the first, still imprisoned, she ultimately confesses to what she sees are the less serious and therefore more defensible charges against her. She tells the High Septon that she did indeed have relations with her cousin Lancel and with Osney Kettleblack, adding his brothers to the list as well, thinking it was better to confess too much than too little, but, as we pointed out years ago in our Jamie and Cersei episode, by confessing her guilt of fornicating with two individuals who had given testimony against her on other, more serious charges, namely regicide and deicide for the murders of Robert Baratheon and the previous High Septon, she actually ends up giving weight to those testimonies. 
Following her confession, she meets with her uncle Kevin, now returned to the city and named regent in her place, while Mace Tyrell has been named Hand to replace the fled Lord Merriweather. Mace in turn has placed his own bannerman, Paxter Redwine and Randall Tarley, to the council as Admiral and Justiciar, respectively. Filling a seat left vacant since Merriweather had been elevated to the handship and the seat once held by Arrain Waters, who, as it turns out, fled with all the Crown's new Dramons when Cersei was arrested. Kevin brings Cersei news of the position she finds herself in, what the charges against her are, that she must face a trial, and also that the High Septon will not agree to her release until she performs an act of penance. He also brings news from Dorne. While Cersei is shocked to hear of the assault on Myrcella, she's nearly overcome with relief to hear that Sir Aris Oakhart died defending her. With a now vacant spot in Tommen's Kingsguard, she could instruct Kyburn, via her uncle, to unveil his creation, the knight who would defend her at her upcoming trial, Sir Robert Strong. Cersei's final chapter deals with her walk of shame. This utterly harrowing experience was one that she at first had convinced herself she would accomplish with her head held high. After all, she was, quote, a lioness. I will not cringe before them. But it quickly becomes a walk of terror for her as the crowd grows unruly, hurling insults and refuse her way, and she begins to see ghosts of all her past mistakes and fears in the crowd, from Tyrion and Tywin to Ned and Sansa, and even Sansa's wolf, and finally Maggie the Frog. And the walk ends with her breaking, running, sobbing for the safety of the Red Keep, falling and scrambling up the final hill on all fours. She realizes how, in exposing herself to the crowds, she has destroyed the illusion that she had so carefully built up around herself. I should not have done this. I was their queen. But now they've seen, they've seen, they've seen I should never have let them see. Gowned and crowned, she was a queen, naked, bloody, limping. She was only a woman, not so very different from their wives, more like their mothers than their pretty little maiden daughters. What have I done? In this, she has proved the truth of something Peter Baelish told Elaine back in A Feast for Crows. Cersei thinks herself sly, but in truth... She is utterly predictable. Her strength rests on her beauty, birth and riches. Only the first of those is truly her own, and it will soon desert her. I pity her then. She wants power, but has no notion of what to do with it when she gets it. Like her twin, Cersei has now faced an identity crisis of sorts. 
Jamie's began with the loss of his sword hand, the hand that made him a knight, the hand upon which his identity was based, while Circe has compromised the illusion of being a beautiful golden queen upon which she based her own identity and power. The difference lies in how each confronts this crisis. Jamie embarks on a self-improvement arc, beginning with sending his champion, Brienne of Tarth, into the Riverlands in search of Sansa Stark. But Cersei, by all indications, will continue to place her faith in dubious characters, including her new champion, Sir Robert Strong, assumed by most, both in story and without, to be a new incarnation of Sir Gregor Clegane. We can hardly think of a more stark contrast between two characters than between Brienne and Gregor, and we don't think we've seen the last of that contrast. And Sir Robert is a fitting note to end this recap upon, since Cersei's introduction to him as she staggered into the courtyard of the Red Keep at the conclusion of her walk marks the end of her Dance with Dragons arc. Kyburn introduces him, telling Cersei, If it please your grace, Sir Robert has taken a holy vow of silence. He has sworn that he will not speak until all of his grace's enemies are dead and evil has been driven from the realm. The chapter ends with her exhausted but simple and clear approval. Yes, thought Cersei Lannister. Oh, yes. We're left in little doubt that, as far as Cersei is concerned, Sir Robert will be instrumental in her achieving her vengeance, and perhaps more in the Winds of Winter. But before we consider what will be happening with Cersei and her champion in Winds, there is one more relevant chapter in A Dance with Dragons to recap. The Kevin Lannister epilogue is chock full of hints and events that will have a strong bearing on where things pick up when Winds is finally in our hands. And so, up next, we'll give a thorough review of everything that happens in the A Dance with Dragons epilogue. She hated and despised all three of her jailers, almost as much as she hated and despised the men who had betrayed her. False friends, treacherous servants, men who had professed undying love, even her own blood, all of them had deserted her in her hour of need. Osney Kettleblack, that weakling, had broken beneath the lash, filling the High Sparrow's ears with secrets he should have taken to his grave. His brothers, scum of the streets whom she had raised high, did no more than sit upon their hands. Orane Waters, her admiral, had fled to sea with the dromans she had built for him. Orton Merriweather had gone running back to Longtable, taking his wife Tana, who had been the queen's one true friend in these terrible times. Harris Swift and Grand Maester Pycelle had abandoned her to captivity and offered the realm to the very men who had conspired against her. Marin Trant and Boros Blount, the king's sworn protectors, were nowhere to be found. Even her cousin Lancel, who had once claimed to love her, was one of her accusers. Her uncle had refused to help her rule when she would have made him the king's hand. And Jamie.
Kevin Lannister's epilogue chapter can be viewed primarily as a setup for several plot lines in The Winds of Winter. From Cersei and the Tyrells, to the small council and the King's Guard, and the problems in Dawn and the Stormlands. The chapter opens with Red Ronnet Connington declaring his loyalty to the crown after his uncle has apparently landed in the Stormlands with the Golden Company and a quote, false dragon, and taken Griffin's Roost. The new hand, Mace Tyrell, declares Connington will have his chance to prove his loyalty when the royal army marches to the Stormlands. In the meantime, Connington would remain in the Red Keep. Red Ronnet Connington is recently returned from Maidenpool, where he had been sent by Jamie Lannister to deliver former Tully retainers Robin Ryger and Desmond Grell to a ship presumably now headed to the Wall. With him were a number of Gregor Clegane's former men, including Rafford, known as the Sweetling, who have also all returned with Connington to the capital. The first paragraph of the chapter mentions the snow that is falling in the capital, and to place it in context with other regions, several weeks have passed since Jamie disappeared in the Riverlands, Stannis is nearing an icy crofter's village in the north, Attorney has been held in the Vale, Sam Tarly is at the Citadel in Old Town, Ariane Martell is heading for the Stormlands, and in Bravos, Ayastark assassinates an insurance salesman, while in Marine, Tyrion has been sold to the menagerie of Yazan Zokagaz, and Daenerys Targaryen wed to Hisdar Zo Lorak. Tommen's small council at the moment numbers five, the regent, Kevin, Mace Tyrell, the Hand, Pycelle, Harris Swift, Master of Coin, and the new Justiciar, Randall Tarley. Not present are the new Lord Admiral, Paxter Redwine, who has returned to the Reach to defend its islands and coasts from the predations of Euron Greyjoy, and of course the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, missing in the Riverlands with Brienne of Tarth. Having addressed the issue of the Knight of Griffin's Roost, the discussion turns to the sellsword incursions happening all over the south. Pycelle shows a map identifying a number of landing places. Here and here, all along the coast and on the islands, Tarth the Stepstones, even Estamont. And now we have reports that Connington is moving on Storm's End. Ever want to bluster, the hand Mace Tyrell declares that Connington, quote, cannot take Storm's End, not if he were Aegon the Conqueror, and if he does, what of it? Stannis holds it now. Let the castle pass from one pretender to another. Why should that trouble us? I shall recapture it after my daughter's innocence is proved. Furthermore, and perhaps somewhat ominously, given George's penchant for never letting his characters have things easy, Mace dismisses Tommen's challengers as mere hurdles on the road to consolidating his own power. Once Paxter Redwine sweeps the Iron Men from the sea, my sons will retake the shields. The snows will do for Stannis, or Bolton will. Throughout the meeting, we see that Kevin is annoyed by these things Mace says, but manages to keep things equitable. 
In fact, he is proving to be an able politician, keen to focus on matters of importance to both parties in the council, Lannister and Tyrell, in an attempt to find common ground. He also strikes a conciliatory tone about a number of issues, including the upcoming trial of Marjorie Tyrell. Mace is, of course, irate, while Randall Tarley is scornful. Kevin reminds them that they cannot afford to anger the faith. Speaking of Randall Tarley, every time John Connington is mentioned during this discussion, Tarley says, if it is him. And we're reminded that Tarley was a key Targaryen loyalist during Robert's rebellion, defeating Robert Baratheon at Ashford and killing Lord Kefaren there. At this time, he and John Connington not only fought on the same side, but Connington was Aerys's hand and thus commander of the royal army. So while Mace Tyrell dismisses Connington, saying, What victories has he ever won that we should fear him? He could have ended Robert's rebellion at Stony Sept. He failed, just as the Golden Company has always failed. Some may rush to join them. I, the realm is well rid of such fools. We have to wonder about Randall Tarley's peculiar reaction to reports that his former comrade-in-arms has returned to the scene. Something we'll discuss more in the next segment. When the discussion turns to Aegon, the boy with Connington whom Tarly insists on calling a feigned boy, Kevin remembers Rhaegar's dead son and isn't so sure. The boy, a faceless horror of bone and brain and gore, a few hanks of fair hair. None of us looked long. Tywin said that it was Prince Aegon and we took him at his word. At the same time, Pycelle brings reports about Daenerys and her three dragons in Marine, and while Mace scorns her as being as mad as her father, Pycelle points out that, either way, she has dragons, and Kevin insists that she cannot be allowed to join with John Connington and Aegon. If she should reach these shores and join her strength to Lord Connington and this prince of his, feigned or no, we must destroy Connington and his pretender now, before Daenerys Stormborn can come west. At that point, Mace brings the discussion back to his daughter's trial by linking his cooperation in that effort with Marjorie's innocence. I mean to do just that, sir, after the trials. The subtext throughout, of course, is that if his daughter is not acquitted, he will not stir himself to the Stormlands or anywhere else. The report of the Master Coin, Harris Swift, is that the vaults of the Crown Treasury are empty. Though he's asked the Mirish to make good the Crown debt to the Iron Bank of Bravos, Kevin also suggests trying Pentos. Whereas Swift suggests levying new taxes, Kevin knows that that is something they cannot do, thinking half the lords in the realm could not tell taxation from tyranny and would bolt to the nearest usurper in a heartbeat if it would save them a clipped copper. And setting up the next time we'll see Sir Harris, which will be in the Mercy Sample chapter, Kevin tells his father-in-law that if Mir and Pentos fail, quote, you may well need to go to Bravos 
to treat with the Iron Bank yourself. Privately, Kevin is stealing himself for using Lannister coin to bail out the crown, but the meeting teeters on the edge of hostility as Swift and Tarly quibble over money, and so he takes things in hand, reminding his fellows, We have two queens to try for high treason, you may recall. My niece has elected trial by battle, she informs me. Sir Robert Strong will champion her. Next, they discuss Robert Strong. Kevin knows, or suspects, who he is and thinks the others must as well. Mace is clearly suspicious and doubts his worthiness, but Kevin reminds him that Kyburn has vouched for the man, and if that wasn't enough, which on its own it's doubtful if it would have been, he reminds the hand of a salient fact. Be that as it may... We need Sir Robert to prevail, my lords, if my niece is proved guilty of these treasons. The legitimacy of her children will be called into question. If Tommen ceases to be a king, Marjorie will cease to be a queen. And while this seems fairly on point, and Mace doesn't argue per se, Kevin clearly felt the need to give further reassurance regarding Cersei and her future. Whatever Cersei may have done, she is still a daughter of the Rock, of mine own blood. I will not let her die a traitor's death, but I have made sure to draw her fangs. All her guards have been dismissed and replaced with my own men. In place of her former ladies-in-waiting, she will henceforth be attended by a scepter and three novices selected by the High Septon. She is to have no further voice in the governance of the realm, nor in Tommen's education. I mean to return her to Casterly Rock after the trial, and see that she remains there. Let that suffice. In this we can hear the shadow of Tywin Lannister speaking. Not only does Kevin speak in a voice that brooked no dissent, as his brother did, his plan is very similar to what Tywin intended for Cersei, as Kevin told her in A Feast for Crows on the day of Tywin's funeral. Tywin did not intend that you continue as regent. He told me of his plans to send you back to the Rock and find a new husband for you. While Kevin acceded that Cersei need not remarry if she found it distasteful, he would not waver on her resigning the regency as a condition of him serving as Tommen's hand. Her refusal is what led to their estrangement, which lasted until Kevin was summoned back to King's Landing following her arrest. Even then, we could hardly say they reconciled, Rather that he manoeuvred the situation to a place where he felt he could best safely extricate Cersei, who was after all a Lannister, without alienating any allies. Her permanent removal from power, though, was to be a foregone conclusion. And on that note, after declining to address the Rosby inheritance, one of the minor mysteries of the King's Landing storyline that we'll be discussing later in the episode... He moved on to the subject of Princess Myrcella and Dorne. Mace Tyrell, as a Reacher Lord, a born enemy of the Dornish and having a personal gripe with House Martell following his son Willis being crippled an attorney as he dueled the late Prince Oberyn, 
suggests that a better match should be found for Marcella. Thinking wryly that Mace was likely thinking of Willis, Kevin declines that suggestion, saying, We have enemies enough without offending Dorne. If Dorid Martell were to join his strength to Connington's in support of this feigned dragon, things could go very ill for all of us. As we'll be discussing in the next segment, that statement is very likely foreshadowing of how things will go for the Crown Loyalists in The Winds of Winter. And with that, Kevin adjourned the council, declaring they would meet again in five days, quote, after Cersei's trial. Proving that he is at least capable of understanding a direct statement, May seems to realise the importance of Cersei's vindication, and in departing gave a slight bow, saying, May the warrior lend strength to Sir Robert's arms. While Kevin recognized this incremental thawing of relations as a tiny step forward, moments later, both Pacell and Harris Swift would voice their unease with the Tyrell cohort and their desire for guards. Pycelle is clearly concerned that Mace wants to silence his testimony regarding Marjorie requesting moon tea, while Swift merely mentions perilous times. Kevin knows there's actually a direct threat to his father-in-law since Mace Tyrell has his own candidate for the role of Master of Coin, now called Lord Treasurer, his uncle Garth, whom Tywin had apparently allowed Mace to understand would be named to that role, and who Cersei had roundly rejected at Tywin's funeral in favor of her own candidate, the late Giles Rosby. Recognising the delicate balance of the council, three Lannister and three Tyrell, Kevin's thoughts reveal that he is aware of the imminent arrival of Nymeria Sand in Marcella's escort, but had not yet seen fit to notify Mace Tyrell that Oberyn Martell's bastard daughter was being sent to claim the council seat so briefly occupied by her father. And remembering the old enmity between Tyrell and Martell, it's not hard to imagine why the regent hadn't told the hand, but given the outcome of the chapter, this decision is likely to cause no small amount of friction in the Winds of Winter, as we'll be discussing shortly. Kevin's next move was to attend a planned dinner with Cersei and Tommen. He encounters Merrin Trant guarding the drawbridge into Maegor's Holdfast, which prompts some thoughts about the Kingsguard. With Jaime missing in the Riverlands, Balon Swan searching for Darkstar in Dawn, Loras Tyrell gravely wounded on Dragonstone, and Sir Osmond Kettleblack in jail following Cersei's confession of bedding him, only three guards remained in King's Landing. Sir Merrin, Boris Blount, who Kevin thinks of as feeble, and Sir Robert Strong. And so, one of the things Kevin thinks he must attend to soon is restoring the Kingsguard. I will need to find some new swords for the Kingsguard, he thinks. He plans to make use of the precedent of dismissing Barristan Selmy and wonders if he could put his own son, Lancel, in a white cloak. And we'll discuss more about the future of the Kingsguard in an upcoming segment. Kevin's dinner with Cersei marks the last we see of her on page. According to Kevin, she has been, quote, subdued and submissive since her walk of atonement, spending her hours between Tommen, 
prayer and her tub, where her maids reported that she would scrub herself with horsehair brushes and strong lye soap, as if she meant to scrape her skin off. Kevin recognizes what's going on there, thinking she will never wash the stain away, no matter how hard she scrubs. He also spends a brief moment remembering the child Cersei had been and lamenting Aerys's refusal to make a match between her and Rhaegar. If Aerys had agreed to marry her to Rhaegar, how many deaths might have been avoided? Cersei could have given the prince the sons he wanted, lions with purple eyes and silver manes, and with such a wife, Rhaegar might never have looked twice at Lyanna Stark. The northern girl had a wild beauty, he recalled, though however bright a torch might burn, it could never match the rising sun. Kevin also thinks that Tywin would understand why Cersei had to be punished, recalling his brother's treatment of their father's mistress, though how much of that is an attempt to convince himself is up for debate. But he does recognise some political truths, that the faith had to be kept on Tommen's side, that Cersei had become a, quote, vain, foolish, greedy woman, and that ultimately, left to her own devices, she would have, quote, ruined Tommen as she had Joffrey. And with those thoughts in mind, the regent literally beards the lioness in its den. Cersei appears reserved and demure, and over dinner the talk ranges from Mace Tyrell's plans to rebuild the Tower of the Hand to Tommen's cats. Cersei makes what seems like a modest request, that Lady Taina Merriweather and her son be summoned to court to attend her and provide Tommen with a well-born companion. Kevin contemplates fostering the boy himself and agrees to send for them after the trial not knowing that Taina had been intimately involved in Cersei's plotting that led up to her arrest. They also discuss Jamie, and when Kevin starts to urge Cersei to prepare herself for the worst, she interrupts, saying, If he were dead, I would know it. We came into this world together, uncle. He would not go without me. This certainly is something we'll definitely address again, and it is one of the prime indicators that both Jamie and Cersei will survive the current trials and be brought together at least one more time before their arcs end. Cersei also asks if her uncle means to bring his own wife to court, which leads to a curious exchange. My lady wife mislikes travel. Lannisport is her place, is Kevin's reply, to which Cersei counters, it is a wise woman who knows her place. Kevin, on high alert for signs of scheming from his niece, demands to know what she means, and Cersei insists her statement be taken at face value. Given Kevin's unspoken plan to send Cersei back to Casterly Rock, this seems like a challenge of sorts from her. Will her own wisdom lead to her insistence on remaining in the capital, or does she have a new scheme in mind? We'll address what might happen in the next segment. As dinner concludes and Tommen departs, Kevin and Cersei briefly discuss her trial. Cersei warns that Osmond and Osfred Kettleblack, quote, will not stand idly by and watch Osni die, revealing that she's unaware that her uncle had them both arrested following her confession of betting them. 
Their fate will either be to take the black if they confess in turn, or to face Sir Robert should they deny it. And at this point, a messenger arrives, summoning the regent to Pycelle's chambers in the rookery. Of note, both the messenger and the girl who opened the door for him in the rookery were silent children, ominous in hindsight, given what will turn out to be Varys's presence within. In Pycelle's chamber, Kevin finds a white raven and an open window. Turning to face the room, he's struck in the chest by a crossbow bolt. Only then did he notice Pycelle slumped at his table with a shattered skull and Varys in the shadows holding the crossbow. Carrying on where he left off in A Storm of Swords, the erstwhile Master of Whisperers has returned to King's Landing, it seems, to ensure that the realm continues to be destabilized. He tells the dying regent exactly what his plan is. So, Kevin... Forgive me if you can, I bear you no ill will. This was not done from malice. It was for the realm, for the children. This pains me, my lord. You do not deserve to die alone on such a cold, dark night. There are many like you, good men in service to bad causes. But you were threatening to undo all the queen's good work, to reconcile Highgarden and Casterly Rock, bind the faith to your little king, Unite the Seven Kingdoms under Tommen's rule. And he continues with his expectations of what comes next. I thought the crossbow fitting. You shared so much with Lord Tywin. Why not that? Your niece will think the Tyrells had you murdered, mayhaps with the connivance of the imp. The Tyrells will suspect her. Someone somewhere will find a way to blame the Dornish men. Doubt, division and mistrust will eat the very ground beneath your boy king, whilst Aegon raises his banner above Storm's End and the lords of the realm gather round him. Confused, dying, Kevin insists that Rhaegar's son is dead. No, insists Varys, he is in Westeros. Aegon has been shaped for rule since before he could walk. He has been trained in arms as befits a knight to be, but that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes. He speaks several tongues. He has studied history and law and poetry. A septa has instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. He has lived with fisherfolk, worked with his own hands, swum in rivers and mended nets, and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish and cook and bind up a wound. He knows what it is like to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. Tommen has been taught that kingship is his right. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put his people first and live and rule for them. And having established the contraposition of philosophy between Aegon's upbringing and Tommen's, and the effect he believes that will have on both young men's futures, it was time to say goodbye to the Lord Regent. Kevin Lannister's death marks the end of A Dance with Dragons, and the final words seen on page in A Song of Ice and Fire to date. His chapter, as we said, can be seen as set up for much 
that will develop early in the winds of winter, as we'll be discussing further in the next segment. But first, to see us out, here's a reading of that final scene, as Varys's little birds bring down the curtain on the Lord Regent, Kevin Lannister. You are suffering, I know, yet here I stand, going on like some silly old woman. Time to make an end to it. The eunuch pursed his lips and gave a little whistle. Sir Kevin was cold as ice, and every labored breath sent a fresh stab of pain through him. He glimpsed movement, heard the soft scuffling sound of slippered feet on stone. A child emerged from a pool of darkness. A pale boy in a ragged robe, no more than nine or ten. Another rose up behind the Grand Maester's chair. The girl who had opened the door for him was there as well. They were all around him, half a dozen of them, white-faced children with dark eyes, boys and girls together. And in their hands, the daggers. Earlier we mentioned three points that speak to Cersei being far from finished in King's Landing. The first being that we see Cersei as a long game character, given all the work that has gone into building up her arc. Not the least of which is the author's repeated hinting that Jaime and Cersei will die together, which we view as him saying, I'm not done with these two yet. And the second point was based upon something we reviewed again in the last segment, Kevin Lannister's blunt assessment that the Tyrells' continued power in King's Landing was based upon Cersei being found innocent of all charges against her. And finally, we mentioned the Mercy Sample chapter, wherein a pair of Lannister guards accompanying the Lord Treasurer on his mission to the Iron Bank discuss Sir Harris Swift's accountability to the Queen. So Cersei, we believe, is poised not only to be vindicated by Sir Robert Strong and survive her trial, but to reclaim her position of power in the government, something her uncle Kevin insisted to the hand Mace Tyrell would not happen. But A Dance with Dragons ends with the deaths of both Kevin and Grand Maester Pycelle, whom Cersei had grown to see as useless in spite of his long service to both the Crown and House Lannister. So, early in the Winds of Winter, we expect to see some extreme political maneuvering in King's Landing to fill the seats the deaths of those two men left vacant. But before that happens, Cersei's trial must take place, and possibly Marjorie's as well. In the A Dance with Dragons epilogue, Kevin made it clear that the trials would take place swiftly, and that the faith must be placated, and above all else, not alienated in any way. Only with the support of the faith, Kevin believed, could Tom and Hope to prevail over the challenges that still plagued the realm. And Kevin made it crystal clear to Mace that his own wagon was hitched to the Lannister cause. Without Cersei, without Tommen, Marjorie and her family might as well return to Highgarden. However, supposing that Mace fully understood that fact and makes no move to alienate the faith or what's left of House Lannister, 
there will remain the essence of what Varys hoped to accomplish by murdering Pycelle and Kevin. Your niece will think the Tyrells had you murdered, mayhaps with the connivance of the imp. The Tyrells will suspect her. Someone, somewhere, will find a way to blame the Dornishmen. Doubt, division, and mistrust will eat the very ground beneath your boy king. In other words, Mace may understand the importance of Cersei being found innocent and of propping up Tommen's reign from as many angles as he can, but he will probably be ill-equipped to deal with Cersei's paranoia and suspicion, especially when he will be dealing with his own. Did Cersei somehow contrive to get rid of her uncle, who would have sent her away from her son, from government, from power? Or will the imminent arrival of a party of Dornish men and women, especially one that he was not expecting, the Lady Nymeria Sand, come to take up her father's seat on the council, serve to inspire a new suspicion in his mind? That's right. So even before Cersei's trial takes place, she and Mace will be at odds again, All of Kevin's careful work at finding common ground between the two great houses in danger of being undone. But given the Mercy chapter indicates that Cersei has regained some role in the government, we have to ask how such a thing occurred when her uncle clearly stated his intent to remove her from any role in Tommen's government in his last small council meeting. With her family's position in King's Landing weakened, and any in a position to aid her far from the capital, and Mace having both his own army and nominal control of the city watch, one might think it would be an easy thing for Mace to send Cersei back to Casterly Rock, under guard if necessary. And we think the answer has to lie in the silent giant, Sir Robert Strong. Strong is a terrifying figure. If no one could withstand Gregor Clegane, imagine how invincible his undead self will be. The horror of Kyburn's creation will become apparent in Cersei's trial, we're sure, where we expect the faith will be represented by either Theoden the True, the commander of the Warrior Sons, or Lancel Lannister, so far the only other named member of the knightly branch of the Faith Militant. And whichever of those unfortunates draws that straw, we're sure we'll be bidding farewell to early in wins, as Robert Strong will almost certainly make short work of his opponent. Given Lancel's notable frailness, we lean towards the Faith's champion being Sir Theoden, though the symbolism of Lancel, one of Cersei's accusers testifying to her fornication and the murder of Robert Baratheon, two of the primary charges against her taking that role, would be extremely apt, not to mention the continued destruction of House Lannister as a theme. And so once Cersei is vindicated, with Sir Robert at her side, we expect that she will take steps to return herself to power once more, especially with the recent murders of her uncle and Pycelle beating the drum of Tyrell conspiracy in her head. Fanning the flames of that fire will be Sir Harris Swift, who, mere hours before Pycelle and Kevin's murder, heard the Grand Maester express his concerns about the hand to the regent. Lord Tyrell loves me not. 
This matter of the moon tea, I would never have spoken of such, but the Queen Dowager commanded me. If it pleased the Lord Regent, I would sleep more soundly if you could lend me some of your guards. And we have to assume that once Sir Harris reports this to Cersei, she will assume that Mace had Pycelle murdered to stop his testimony at Marjorie's upcoming trial. The fact that Pycelle evidently summoned Kevin to the rookery right from his dinner with Cersei, with the assumption being that he had received some sort of news, won't help, since the unsubtle queen will likely assume that such a message existed and was stolen by the murderer. So following her trial, we expect to see Cersei, once again consumed by paranoia, standing her ground in King's Landing with Robert Strong by her side. But how will she manoeuvre herself into power? To answer that, we must look next at what will be happening with Tommen's small council. In the Kevin epilogue, the regent thought about the carefully curated balance of the council, himself, Harris Swift, and Pycelle representing Lannister interests, and Mace, Randall Tarley, and Paxter Redwine representing the Tyrell faction. With the Grand Maester and the regent now dead, the task of finding their replacements will fall to the Citadel and the council, respectively. When we last discussed the Citadel, in our episode on the A Feast for Crows prologue, we mentioned Gorman Tyrell. Another of Mace's uncles, Gorman is a high-ranking maester of the Citadel, currently sitting in Archmaester Walgrave's place under the iron symbols of Ravenry. But in A Storm of Swords, Varys informed Tyrion that the Lannister faction had narrowly escaped having this Tyrell sent by the Citadel as Pycelle's replacement after Tyrion had him arrested and stripped of his office. The Conclave accepted the fact of Pycelle's dismissal and set about choosing his successor, After giving consideration to Maester Turquin, the Cordwainer's son, and Maester Eric, the Hedge Knight's bastard, and thereby demonstrating to their own satisfaction that ability counts for more than birth in their order, the Conclave was on the verge of sending us Maester Gorman, a Tyrell of Highgarden. Varys continued by saying that once he informed Tywin of this intelligence, Tywin immediately restored Pycelle rather than be saddled with Maester Gorman. But since Tyrell ascendancy in Old Town is unlikely to have changed in the meantime, we're reasonably certain that there's a very good chance the Citadel, informed of Pycelle's death, will once again select Gorman, which will tilt the balance of the council dangerously in favor of the Tyrells. And so, the million-dollar question as we see it is who will this council choose as Tommen's regent? Remember that in the Mercy chapter, the Lannister guards with Harris Swift in Bravos discuss the Queen, as if she is someone who Swift must answer to. A disgraced and done dowager queen surely wouldn't have much power over the mission of the realm's Lord Treasurer, but a queen regent would. But how could this come about? This is where we expect Robert Strong to come in. 
the possibilities for leveraging an undead giant are numerous, from hostages to terror to oblique threats. With Strong at her side, we don't see a huge impediment for Cersei getting her way, at least in this matter. But the Council will remain more green than red, and we don't think the changes to its composition will end there. No, we don't. There are three more factors to be considered regarding the Council. First is that we wonder about the fate of Harris Swift, with at least one of his guards dead in Bravos, and who knows what the fallout of Raff's mysterious murder will be, and a mission to the Iron Bank to complete... We think there's real cause to be concerned for the Knight of Cornfield. Yeah, remember that the Iron Bank has recently concluded an agreement with Stannis Baratheon to finance his efforts to take the throne he sees as rightfully his. In A Feast for Crows, Cersei had foolishly dismissed the representatives of the bank who sought her out in King's Landing, demanding progress on repayment of the crown's debt. The result of that refusal played out in the North in A Dance with Dragons. After concluding his own negotiations with the bank's representative, Tycho Nestorus, Jon Snow would think this. The Iron Bank of Bravos had a fearsome reputation when collecting debts. Each of the nine free cities had its bank, and some had more than one, fighting over every coin like dogs over a bone. But the Iron Bank was richer and more powerful than all the rest combined. When princes defaulted on their debts to lesser banks, ruined bankers sold their wives and children into slavery and opened their own veins. When princes failed to repay the Iron Bank, new princes sprang up from nowhere and took their thrones. As poor plump Tommen may be about to learn... No doubt the Lannisters had good reason for refusing to honor King Robert's debts, but it was folly all the same. If Stannis was not too stiff-necked to accept their terms, the Bravosi would give him all the gold and silver he required, coin enough to buy a dozen sellsword companies, to bribe a hundred lords, to keep his men paid, fed, clothed, and armed. Unless Stannis is lying dead beneath the walls of Winterfell, he may just have won the Iron Throne. So John's thoughts would seem to put Tommen's council's prospects of surviving their dispute with the Iron Bank very low. There's little doubt that Tycho's mission to Stannis was inspired by Cersei's refusal to pay up in A Feast for Crows. Once the bank receives news of Tycho's deal with Stannis, Harris Swift if he's still in Bravos, will be quite expendable. In fact, unless the Lannisters or Tyrells should decide to use their own funds to settle the debt and appease the bank, there may well be more trouble to come from those quarters in the long term. Absolutely. It's not out of the question that Tommen himself could be targeted at some point if the bank is actively supporting regime change a situation that would only inflame Cersei's paranoia ever more dangerously. In the short term, we put poor Harris Swift's chances of a successful mission at zero, and his chances of even returning from Bravos at slim. Either way, we think there will be an opening on the council for a Lord Treasurer, which would be the perfect opportunity for Mace to finally see his other uncle, Garth the Gross, Seneschal of Highgarden, Join him in King's Landing. 
Garth has been talked about since early in A Feast for Crows when Mace accosted Cersei at Tywin's funeral to give her the wonderful news that his uncle would soon be joining them in the capital to take up a seat as master of coin on the small council, quote, as your lord father wished. In that moment, Cersei was quick to act and inform Mace that she had, unfortunately, not been aware of the arrangement and had just the day before appointed Lord Giles Rosby to that post. It was Giles's death later in A Feast of Crows that led to Cersei shuffling Sir Harris into that role, lest Mace seize his opportunity to once more summon his uncle. And Mace's ambition for Garth is referred to again in Kevin's epilogue when the regent is contemplating the composition of the council. Pycelle is not the only council member our hand would like to replace. Mace Tyrell had his own candidate for Lord Treasurer, his uncle, Lord Seneschal of Highgarden, whom men called Garth the Gross. The last thing I need is another Tyrell on the small council. Add to this the fact that Mace had also told Cersei of his uncle's intent to bring two of his bastard sons along to King's Landing with him, perhaps to take up roles in the City Watch. And we can see that should Sir Harris not survive his trip to Bravos, there's a very good chance that King's Landing might soon be welcoming a new cohort of Tyrells. But the possible replacement of Harris Swift by Garth Tyrell isn't the only issue Tommen's council will be facing. The second is a member of the council that Kevin seemed to have forgotten about when he considered the delicate balance of three Tyrells and three Lannisters that he had achieved. The Lord Commander of the Kingsguard has served on the council advising on military matters since the days of Jaehaerys I. The current Lord Commander, Jamie Lannister, would theoretically add a supporter of Cersei's to the lineup, but Jamie himself has been missing since around the time of Cersei's arrest. That's right, and with weeks now gone by, with no word from him, even Kevin has advised Cersei that they should prepare themselves for the worst. Though Cersei rejected that suggestion, we think that Mace Tyrell will also be thinking along those lines, and will likely have his own candidate in mind for a replacement, a topic we'll get back to shortly. Now, at the midway point of the episode, it's time to take a moment to thank our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Radio Westeros is powered by patrons, and we owe our thanks to... Aerodo, Aileen, Oxheart, Amber, Hortense of Ashai, B-Word, the Queen Beyond the Wall, Blight Spirit, Catherine, Chris K, Christian, Marge of the Mage, Dean, Dibbles and Bits, Eliana Targaryen, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, John H, JM, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, Boss, the Sithorian, Sammy, Drew, Scotty, Tim, and Lady Diarliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Hold up. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What does the Citadel teach concerning prophecy? Can our morrows be foretold? The old man hesitated. One wrinkled hand groped blindly at his chest, as if to stroke the beard that was not there. Can our morrows be foretold? He repeated slowly. Mayhaps. There are certain spells in the old books. But your grace might ask instead, should our morrows be foretold? Into that, I should answer no. Some doors are best left closed. Okay, we're back. And with the third factor that will affect the small council, something much more certain as confirmed in the final Dornish chapter of A Dance with Dragons, Ariohotar's The Watcher, and again in the Kevin epilogue, Nymeria Sand is en route to King's Landing with Marcella to take up her father's seat on the council. Yeah, apparently prior to her arrest, Cersei had developed a plan to invite both Doran and Tristane to accompany Marcella back to King's Landing, ostensibly for an extended visit, though she extended the offer of the council seat to Doran in hopes of assuring that he would accompany the two youngsters. Cersei's plan was to have Tristane murdered on the way by anonymous assassins shouting half-man in a clumsy effort to point the finger of blame at her despised brother. Durham Martell tells his daughter and nieces as much in The Watcher. Dawn still has friends at court, friends who tell us things we were not meant to know. This invitation Cersei sent is a ruse. Tristane is never meant to reach King's Landing. On the way back, somewhere in the Kingswood, Sir Balon's party will be attacked by outlaws, and my son will die. I am asked to court only so that I may witness this attack with my own eyes, and thereby absolve the Queen of any blame. Oh, and these outlaws... They will be shouting, half-man, half-man, as they attack. Sir Balon may even catch a quick glimpse of the imp, though no one else will. Setting aside the intriguing matter of Dorne's friends at court for the moment, we know from the Ariane 2 sample chapter that Doran foiled that plan. 
Tristane remained safely at Sunspear while Myrcella went north, accompanied by Nymeria and Tyene Sand and 300 Dornish Spears. Balon Swan, as of Kevin's chapter, was off hunting for Darkstar with Obara Sand and did not accompany his princess. As we've noted, Kevin had not yet seen fit to inform Mace of the imminent arrival of their new council member, and we certainly expect this will not be accepted meekly by the Hand. But the fact is that Nymeria will be able to point to an invitation from the former regent Cersei and the probable acquiescence of Kevin Lannister to justify her taking up her seat. And while 300 armed Dornish in the city will do little to set Mace at ease or assuage any concerns he may develop about who was responsible for the deaths of Kevin and Pycelle, there will probably be little he can do to prevent it, especially if Cersei has taken steps to have herself named regent once more. And Lady Nim, we think, will be a wild card on the council. She has her own agenda and is unlikely to get cozy with either House Lannister, seen as responsible for the deaths of Oberyn, Elia, and her children, or House Tyrell, their ancient rival. The Dornish agenda is vengeance, fire and blood, and whether that goal is achieved by an alliance with Daenerys or with the invading forces of John Connington and Prince Aegon, Dorne is unlikely to want more from their council seat than intelligence to support that agenda, which we expect Nim to provide in plenty, while her sister Tyene makes her way to Visenya's Hill to attempt to ingratiate herself with the Faith. But what will Nymeria and Tyene make of Cersei's champion? In The Watcher, it was Nim who countered her sister's suspicions about the skull Balon Swan had delivered and named as that of Gregor Clegane. No one saw the mountain die, and no one saw his head removed. That troubles me, I confess. But what could the bitch queen hope to accomplish by deceiving us? If Gregor Clegane is alive, soon or late the truth will out. The man was eight feet tall. There is not another like him in all of Westeros. If any such appears again, Cersei Lannister will be exposed as a liar before all the Seven Kingdoms. She would be an utter fool to risk that. What could she hope to gain? What indeed... So we wonder what the Dornish women's reaction will be when they see Robert Strong standing by Cersei's side. Will Nymeria call her out, or will she be so horrified by Kyburn's creation that she keeps her tongue? Remember that at Sunspear, Tyene declared, I know the poison father used. If his spear so much as broke the mountain's skin, Clegane is dead. I do not care how big he was. Doubt your little sister if you like, but never doubt our sire. Surely these two women, whose reverence of their late father is nothing if not passionate, will try to find answers to the mystery of the eight-foot-tall giant in Tommen's Kingsguard. This could result in Tyene, like Oberyn, an expert at poisons, snooping around Kyburn's workshop with potentially dire consequences considering his track record with young women. 
Yeah, and this might not be all that surprising because in spite of her ostensible mission to infiltrate the faith, if that should prove less than successful, Tain might find herself at loose ends, which could lead her into a dangerous situation. We also have to acknowledge that Cersei's obvious deception in the matter of Sir Gregor might inspire Oberyn's daughters to seek their own solutions. And for an indication of what that might look like, we have only to consider the talents of these two daughters of Dawn. Tyene, the poisoner as we said, and Nymeria, beautiful and vengeful, noted for her skill with hidden blades, which leads Eriohotar to think Nymeria was least dangerous when nearly naked. Elsewise, she was sure to have a dozen blades concealed about her person. Now, both were shocked to learn of Cersei's plot to kill Tristane, and neither will have forgotten it. Upon learning more of Cersei's perfidy, it seems highly likely that they could take matters into their own hands and seek to destroy her by coming up with a plot of their own. Considering the Tristane plot, it seems like the target would be Cersei's own child, and their weapon of choice, the, quote, woman's weapon that Tyene is an expert at and offers the greatest chance of secrecy and success, poison. While we expect both of Cersei's children to die in the winds of winter, finally fulfilling Maggie the Frog's old prophecy, we think that if the Sand Snakes were to target one of them, it would be Marcella, given that they will have probably gained her trust during their journey together. And so the Sand Snakes' time in King's Landing will be marked by conflict and murder, and whether the two women ultimately escape the attention of Robert Strong is yet to be seen. One thing that will almost certainly result from their time in the capital is the permanent alienation of Dorne. Recall that Kevin warned, we have enemies enough without offending Dorne. If Doran Martell were to join his strength to Connington's in support of this famed dragon, things could go very ill for all of us. Given Arianne's mission to make contact with Connington that's revealed in her two sample chapters, which we'll be analyzing in a future episode, we think this is exactly what will happen in the Winds of Winter, and that Nymeria's and Tyene's time and discoveries in King's Landing will play a role in that. Speaking of the Ariane sample chapters, in Ariane 2, Halden Halfmaester tells the Dornish princess that John Connington has taken Storm's End and awaits her there. To add urgency to her journey, he tells her, there is an army descending on Storm's End from King's Landing. If we return to the Kevin epilogue and the final meeting of the small council in A Dance with Dragons, wherein the matter of John Connington's invasion was discussed, we see Mace Tyrell expressing not only his confidence of defeating Connington and retaking the Baratheon stronghold, but also one certain conviction. I shall recapture it after my daughter's innocence is proved. And moments later, he emphasized the point again. Connington would be defeated in the field, he assured the council. I mean to do just that, sir, after the trials. And so we have to assume that by the time Arianne arrived at Griffin's Roost, some weeks after the Kevin epilogue, 
Marjorie's trial has also occurred. She has been acquitted, and Mace has departed the city with his army to make good his promise to destroy Connington. In this, he will likely be accompanied by both Red Ronick Connington, who had been offered the opportunity to prove his loyalty when the Royal Army brought the fight to John Connington, and by the Master of Laws, Lord Randall Tarley, that experienced commander who was instrumental in most of the reach of victories in both Robert's Rebellion and the War of the Five Kings, and about whom Kevin Lannister thought, Tarly is the real danger, a narrow man, but iron-willed and shrewd, and as good a soldier as the reach could boast. In addition to Lord Randall's martial skill, we pointed out in the last segment that he was once a comrade-in-arms of John Connington, serving under the Lord of Griffin's Roost when he commanded Aerys's army during Robert's Rebellion. We'll analyze this relationship past, present, and future in an upcoming episode, but suffice it to say that, in our opinion, there is a strong possibility that the Tyrell army becomes fractured at some point once it ventures out from the capital. But first, it seems Marjorie will have a trial. In A Feast for Crows, it was Cersei who suggested a trial by the faith, or perhaps a trial by battle as she herself would ultimately choose. The High Sparrow agreed, saying, Who is truly fit to judge a queen, save the seven above and the gods worn below? A sacred court of seven judges shall sit upon this case. Three shall be of your female sex, a maiden, a mother, and a crone. Who could be more suited to judge the wickedness of women? And so a trial by the faith seems to be what's in store for Marjorie, though Cersei herself did suggest to the imprisoned Marjorie that she could hazard her case on a trial by battle with one of the king's guard as her champion, knowing full well that Marjorie would never entrust her life to any of the white cloaks in King's Landing, and that Loras was apparently dying on Dragonstone. But Cersei stopped getting news of Loras's condition while she herself was imprisoned. The only time he's mentioned to her is when she asks Septa Scalera to explain why Marjorie had been freed. Was there a trial, she asked. The reply from the Scepter was, Soon, but her brother? This in turn got the attention of Septa Unella. Hush! You chatter too much, you foolish old woman. It is not for us to speak of such things. And so we wonder exactly what it was that went unspoken there, and if it was significant to Marjorie's upcoming trial, as Scolera's initial response seemed to indicate. For although Kevin thinks of the Knight of the Flowers as being gravely wounded on Dragonstone, Mace himself seems to be concerned more for Marjorie than Loras, and his condition is hardly mentioned once the two queens have been arrested. Well, it is worth considering, as many have done, that Loras is nowhere near as gravely wounded as his family is allowing the Lannisters to believe. And while Cersei may have suggested the trial by the faith to the High Septon, as we said in her conversation with Marjorie, she also purposefully and spitefully suggested the possibility of a trial by battle. Could Marjorie have learned that her brother was recovering enough to defend her? 
It wouldn't be the first thing to be kept from Cersei in the aftermath of her arrest. It was only on the night of his death, for instance, that Kevin informed her that Osmond and Osfried Kettleblack had been arrested and would face trial with their brother Osney unless they confessed to fornicating with Cersei and asked to take the black. We also want to point out Mace's impatience with the idea of a trial. When Kevin insists on appeasing the faith, Mace says, These charges against my daughter are filthy lies. I ask again, why must we play out this mummer's farce? Have King Tommen declare my daughter innocent, sir, and put an end to the foolishness here and now. While Kevin reminds Mace that his high holiness insists upon a trial, Randall Tully adds his own impatience to that of his liege. What have we become when kings and high lords must dance to the twittering of sparrows? And so we arrive at what we view as two possibilities for how Marjorie's trial will play out. One that her brother Loras will defend her against the faith's champion, or the second that she is indeed tried by the faith and found to be innocent of all charges. And while Loris, if he is indeed well enough, might seem like the surer bet, we should point out that Kevin mentioned that all of Marjorie's accusers had recanted, with the exception of the Blue Bard, who had been tortured into insanity by Kyburn with Cersei's approval. Pycelle, who would testify about giving the young queen moon tea, is dead, and all in all the case against her seems to be very weak going into the Winds of Winter. But whether her brother makes a dramatic comeback and puts an end to the spectacle of a trial and the testimony of the mad singer, or whether the representatives of the Seven simply hear the evidence and decide upon the Queen's innocence, we think it's relatively safe to assume that with the Tyrell army apparently heading to Storm's End early in the winds of winter, Marjorie has been found innocent, allowing her father to head south to make good upon his vow to defeat John Connington and retake Storm's End. But even as we predict that both queens will be found innocent at their respective trials, we should not in any way discount the significance of the faith to the King's Landing narrative in The Winds of Winter. In A Feast for Crows, Cersei consented to the rebirth of the Warriors' Sons and the Poor Fellows, two organizations that had been banned in the Seven Kingdoms since Magor the Cruel's day, and, with good reason, from the standpoint of preserving the authority of the crown. The rearmed faithful are not likely to forget what they view as the wrongs and atrocities committed by members of the ruling class, and taking their newly restored rights away from them won't be easily done, which in Magor's day was accomplished only by a trial by seven, of which Magor was the only survivor, and barely at that. So we'll be keeping our eyes on the faith, and particularly the warrior's sons and poor fellows, to be making waves in King's Landing early in the Winds of Winter. Another matter of some importance that we expect to come up early in the book is Tommen's Kingsguard. In Kevin's epilogue, 
He thinks of the dearth of white cloaks in the capital, with Balon Swan in Dawn, Loras on Dragonstone, and Jamie in the Riverlands, not to mention Osmond Kettleblack in jail, the Kingsguard was reduced to Merrin Trant, Boros Blount, and Robert Strong. I will need to find some new swords for the Kingsguard, is what Kevin thought, and that won't have changed with his death. What will have changed was his passing thought of giving a white cloak to Lancel, but the precedent set by Joffrey's dismissal of Barristan Selmy also won't have changed. Though with Kettleblack likely to be expelled as a result of his trial, Balon Swan's survival in Dorne anything but certain, and Boros Blount apparently so feeble he can barely stand up straight, it's very likely that there'll be numerous openings in the Kingsguard, early in the Winds of Winter. Yeah, and remember those sons Mace's uncle, Garth the Gross, wanted to bring to King's Landing with him? Those are but two of the possibilities of people Mace could choose to suggest as candidates, since his kinsmen, the Redwine twins, are specifically noted to desire white cloaks. Mace could also choose to use the precedent of Barristan Selmy's dismissal to suggest another change in the King's Guard, the replacement of the missing in action Lord Commander Jamie Lannister, unheard from for weeks now and maimed to boot. And assuming Loras did indeed survive Dragonstone and was far less seriously injured than Cersei had been led to believe, the suggestion of replacing Jaime with Loras would be exactly what one might expect from Mace Tyrell. It would also be a marvelous parallel to Jaime replacing Barristan, but even as a suggestion, we think this is one thing Cersei would view as a bridge too far. As an actual deed, it just might be the last straw that leads her to a violent and decisive action. And so getting back to Cersei, we've outlined here just a few of many challenges she'll face in the Winds of Winter, each one more complex and isolating than the last. With her proven track record of jumping to conclusions and poor decision making, will we continue to see her stumbling through the narrative as we did in Feast? Or have her recent experiences tempered her in a way we wouldn't have foreseen? While on the one hand we're of the opinion that an experience such as her Walk of Atonement must have some sort of impact on her character development, we're also sure that she'll continue to be motivated by her paranoia about the Velencar prophecy and her brother Tyrion, her fears for her children and her general mistrust of all things related to House Tyrell. She's also spent a lot of mental energy considering herself as Tywin's true and only heir. But so far, her efforts to emulate her father have been mostly clumsy and ill-conceived. Could this be the development we want to see in her character? Yeah, we wonder if the Winds of Winter will show us a Cersei whose character hasn't changed so much as evolved and hardened. In other words, she could be just as paranoid and mistrustful as ever, but her decisions could become more Tywin-esque than ever. Whereas previously she attempted to concoct subtle plots to do away with those she saw as her enemies, perhaps she will embrace a more direct method 
in the winds of winter. Well, Tyrion once alluded to the fact that Cersei considered herself subtle, but was in fact the opposite. Should she seize control of King's Landing in the winds of winter, we can see her becoming more competent at achieving her goals by embracing her father's scorched earth policies to finally rid herself of everyone she sees as an enemy or an impediment to her agenda. As for what her agenda will be, the quote we open the episode with seems to sum up what she wants best. The rule was hers. Cersei did not mean to give it up until Tommen came of age. And while Maggie the Frog's Valonqar prophecy will continue to haunt her as she sees it, the best way to prevent that will be to assume absolute power, to rid herself of Marjorie, who she sees as the younger, more beautiful one, and all the Tyrells, who even her uncle Kevin, it says in his epilogue, was beginning to understand why Cersei had grown so resentful of. And even once and for all to be rid of every man who ever laughed at her or, in her eyes, betrayed her. When Kevin demurred and stated that she would remain in the West, Cersei's curious response, is a wise woman who knows her place, aroused her uncle's suspicions. As we see it, Cersei is making a not-so-subtle statement about herself, Her place is in King's Landing, as she sees it, not packed off to Casterly Rock to live a life of modest retirement. That would be no life at all for someone who early on declared their philosophy to be, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. In the Winds of Winter, we think Cersei's isolation will be something she chooses not something that she inflicts upon herself as a result of poor decision-making as it was in A Feast for Crows. If Myrcella is indeed killed by the Sand Snakes, expect Cersei's paranoia to peak and her resolve to harden. She'll spend her energy attempting to forestall that final golden shroud of Maggie's prophecy, while at the same time taking a winner-takes-all approach to consolidating her power. And this is where her efforts to emulate Tywin may finally prove successful. When faced with a particularly intractable foe, his uncle's former wife, Lady Ellen Tarbeck, the young Tywin took steps to ensure that she, who had once laughed at his father, and her family were dealt with. Tywin extinguished both the reigns her birth family and the Tarbecks so completely that for the rest of his life the mere mention of the Reigns or Tarbecks or a few bars of the song that was written about them was enough to bring his enemies to heel. So should Cersei decide that she must take a drastic approach to her own problems with the Tyrells and the Faith in King's Landing, we think that at last we might see the meaning of all the parallels with Ares II and her obvious connection with wildfire in the text. Where Ares would have burned the entire city down to prevent his enemies from taking it, would Cersei use her connections with the Pyromancer's Guild to attempt a more surgical destruction, in the vein of Tywin destroying Tarbeck Hall, Castamere, and all of the souls within? In the first section, we mentioned Cersei's parallels with Ares, 
and how even Jamie was disturbed by them as he watched her observing the Tower of the Hand burning with Elaine's carefully laid wildfire. In her own POV, it says she found the green flames beautiful and that, quote, the wildfire was cleansing her, burning away all her rage and fear, filling her with resolve. In the same chapter, she tells Jamie, let all of King's Landing see the flames. It will be a lesson to our enemies. In addition, Ned, Tyrion, and Sansa all liken her eyes to wildfire at some point, and Jamie makes a very specific observation about Cersei and her relationship to their father. His sister liked to think of herself as Lord Tywin with teats, but she was wrong. Their father had been as relentless and implacable as a glacier, while Cersei was all wildfire, especially when thwarted. Viewed as foreshadowing, all of the wildfire connections and mentions in Cersei's arc, combined with her obvious intent to emulate her father, lead us to the conclusion that Cersei's solution to an infestation of Tyrells and the intractable issue of the faith militant will be to attempt to exterminate her foes with wildfire. When exactly this will happen, and if Jamie is involved or possibly tries to stop her, are, at present we think, unanswerable questions. We do want to point out that Jamie, in A Feast for Crows, was aware that Kevin knew about him and Cersei and their children. At the time, he thought, Cersei knows he knows. Sir Kevin was a Lannister of Casterly Rock. He could not believe that she would ever do him harm, but I was wrong about Tyrion. Why not about Cersei? When sons were killing fathers, what was there to stop a niece from ordering an uncle slain? An inconvenient uncle who knows too much. Given this, when he hears about Kevin's death, it seems almost inevitable that he will wonder if it was Cersei's doing. Varys's promise to Kevin about doubt, division and mistrust will play out across the pages of The Winds of Winter in Cersei's arc as she seeks to keep herself in power, rid herself of every soul who has ever wronged her and prevent the predictions of an old witch from coming true. At the end of the day, while Cersei may have evolved in her methods, we don't think she'll be able to stop being the person Tyrion described to young Griff in A Dance with Dragons. Cersei is as gentle as King Maegor, as selfless as Aegon the Unworthy, as wise as mad Ares. She never forgets a slight, real or imagined. She takes caution for cowardice and dissent for defiance. And she is greedy, greedy for power for honour, for love. And having said that, it seems like for Cersei, the Winds of Winter will be much the same as Feast was in one very important way. Her obsession with the prophecies of Maggie the Frog and her increasingly desperate attempts to forestall them. As much as her efforts to seize power might initially give her a sense of security, her actions will inevitably lead to them coming true proving once again that in Westeros, prophecy is a notoriously tricky beast and a dangerous thing to meddle with. And up next, to conclude the episode, we'll be reviewing some of the smaller mysteries in and around King's Landing that we hope to see resolved in the Winds of Winter. But first, 
Here's an ad from another A Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Take it away, A Thousand Eyes and One podcast. Theme song, theme song. (laughs) I'm Tanya. And I'm Nikki. And we are A Thousand Eyes and One, a podcast all about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. Join us for Game of Thrones episode breakdowns, book and show comparisons, and a deeper exploration into the entire world of Ice and Fire, all from the perspective of two nerdy black women. We also host Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire trivia. Go to thousandeyespodcast.com and follow us on social media for updates. Find us on Twitter, Thousand Eyes One, and on Facebook and Instagram, A Thousand Eyes and One. We swear by the old gods and the new, you will be entertained. There are numerous small mysteries and minor character plot lines that are happening around King's Landing, from whatever happened to people like Bronn, Kyburn, and Orane Waters, to the fates of Taina Merriweather, Tyrek Lannister, and the as-yet-unidentified Rossby Ward. We expect a number of these things will be part of the King's Landing storyline in The Winds of Winter. Most significantly, we think, and very likely related to a number of those threads, is the question of what Varys the Spider got up to in the months between Tyrion's departure and Kevin's death. Other than the fact that the jailers in the Black Cells report that Rugen, the under-jailer, had vanished after Tyrion's escape, we have no reason to think that the former Master of Whisperers ever left King's Landing. In fact, as we'll discuss here... There are plenty of indications that Varys remained in the capital and continued doing exactly what he'd been doing since A Game of Thrones. That is, actively working to destabilise the monarchy in advance of Aegon's invasion. Yeah, that is admittedly what his agenda was in A Game of Thrones, and he also said as much to Kevin when he reappeared at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Doubt, division, and mistrust will eat the very ground beneath your boy king, whilst Aegon raises his banner above Storm's End, and the lords of the realm gather round him. And so far, his actions that we're aware of have been extremely successful in the chaos and destabilization department, and Westeros seems ripe for a quote, saviour come from across the sea to bind up the wounds of bleeding Westeros, to use his co-conspirator Illyrio's words. However, in the months since Varys freed Tyrion at Jaime's request, and Tyrion took it upon himself to confront a murdered Tywin, and Varys went to ground, quite a bit more chaos has been happening in King's Landing, much of it surrounding Cersei. Yeah, we had Tywin's death and funeral, wherein Cersei alienated Mace Tyrell and began her campaign of uprooting as many roses, or people loyal to House Tyrell, as she could. Her father's death also inspired in her the conviction that she was his natural heir, and she began to act accordingly, as she saw it. In her zeal to capture Tyrion, she burned the Tower of the Hand on the night of Tommen's marriage to Marjorie Tyrell, Then she intentionally alienated both her uncle and her brother and consented to the rearming of the warrior's sons and poor fellows, the so-called faith militant that had been banned since the days of Magor the Cruel. 
And once she had accomplished her own isolation, she set out to do the same to Marjorie. Up to that point, her actions were suitably chaotic without any outside influence other than that of an old fortune teller from Lannisport. But once her uncle, brother, Mace and Elena had all departed the city, Cersei, convinced that Marjorie was the younger, more beautiful one from Maggie's prophecy, began to actively plan Marjorie's downfall. And that's when we think she might have received a little push in the right direction. And during the investigation of Tyrion's escape and the under-jailer Rugen, who Jamie was well aware is none other than Varys, Kyburn brought Cersei a curious gold coin that he found in Rugen's cell. Cersei recognizes that the coin isn't a normal dragon, and Kyburn informs her, It dates from before the conquest, your grace. The king is Garth the Twelfth, and the hand is the sigil of House Gardner. So immediately Cersei begins to suspect the Tyrells are somehow connected to Tyrion's escape. Not long after, Cersei struck up a friendship with Lady Taina Merriweather about whom Jaime warns, she's informing on you to the little queen. It turns out Cersei is aware of the relationship and she tells Jaime she's turned Taina into a double agent. But there seems to be credible evidence that Taina works for neither Marjorie nor Cersei, but Varys. And hat tip to Brynden Beefish for sharing this with us, I think, several years ago now. Well, many people are actually convinced that Taina isn't on the up and up. She certainly behaved suspiciously on a number of occasions, not the least of which was her flight from the capital with her husband, then Hand of the King, following Cersei's arrest. While this could have been simply because they feared being caught up in a dragnet of Cersei's associates, it certainly speaks against her actually working for the Tyrells. But there is a fairly significant detail which actually hints strongly at a Varys connection, and that is when Taina tells Cersei that Lady Olenna Tyrell keeps a chest of coins in her wheelhouse, Old gold from before the conquest, as Cersei informs Jamie. This is a curious piece of information for Taina to let slip, unless, of course, she had a reason to want to underline to Cersei that such a coin found hidden in King's Landing could only have come from Lady Olenna Tyrell. That's right, if we accept that the coin Kyburn found was planted by Varys, also known as Rugen the Underjailer then it stands to reason that the person who would gain the most from making the further connection of that coin to Lady Olenna is also Varys. Tina goes on to stoke the flames of Cersei's vendetta against Marjorie by informing her that her maid Sinel is spying for the Tyrells and by asserting that Marjorie's marriage to Renly Baratheon was indeed consummated. She also plants the idea that Marjorie is having an affair with Loras, and later the Blue Bard. Again, these are hardly things someone who was working for the Tyrells would do, as they nearly all work equally against Marjorie. Sadly, these things also work against Senel and the Blue Bard, both of whom Cersei gives to Kyburn. 
And while we can't say for sure what else Tina may have done other than pass inflammatory rumors back and forth, we do know that Cersei thinks of her as a true friend and asks her uncle to summon her back to court. Of course, she also thinks that Tana knows too much about the plotting against Marjorie, so the question in terms of Cersei's desire to see Tana is whether it's for her usefulness or simply to find a way to stop her from talking. Well, no matter who Tana was working for, we think she's at least intelligent enough to sense the danger that would come from returning to King's Landing. So we don't necessarily expect to get an answer to that question or to see her in Cersei's point of views in The Winds of Winter. But if she was indeed an agent of Varys, we wouldn't be at all surprised to see her turn up in the Aegon storyline. Another interesting character who likely will turn up in The Winds of Winter and may have been up to more than it seemed in A Feast for Crows is Orain Waters. The bastard brother of Monford Valerian, he came to Cersei's attention after he bent the knee to Tommen following the Battle of the Blackwater, where he fought for Stannis. Blessed with Valerian coloring, Orain reminds Cersei of Rhaegar Targaryen, which she spends a lot of time thinking about in A Feast for Crows. When Jaime warns her against putting her trust in this inexperienced young man, much as he had warned her about Taina Merriweather, she scorned his caution and named Waters her Lord Admiral, almost to spite him, placing him in command of the new royal fleet, which was being built at great expense. Oh, Cersei. Arain accompanied Loras Tyrell to Dragonstone, and it was he who brought back word of the young knight's grave injuries following the storming of the castle. And so, among other things he could have done during his unprecedented access to Cersei and the Council, is bring back false or exaggerated information about Loras's condition. It quickly becomes apparent that Marjorie has an inordinate amount of faith in her brother's recovery, which would make sense if there was a plot afoot to hide something from Cersei. Whether or not this is the case, while Orain Waters perhaps simply has an eye to his own advancement, he could certainly be in league with either Varys or some other faction. Like Tana, he fled the city when Cersei was arrested, though in much more dramatic fashion. He took with him all of the new Dromons that Cersei had put him in charge of building for the royal fleet, crewed and captained by men who were loyal only to him. In the first Arianne sample chapter, she hears this news from the Stepstones. A new pirate king has set up on Torturer's Deep, the Lord of the Waters, he styles himself. This one has real warships, three deckers, monstrous large. So it seems pretty clear that the Lord of the Waters is the former Lord Admiral Waters, and what he might get up to in the Winds of Winter is really up for debate, though we wouldn't be at all surprised if he throws in with Aegon after possibly having been in Varys' employ all along. In A Feast for Crows, Kyburn informed Cersei that he was no longer on the small council, quote, although for the nonce they allow me to continue my work with the eunuch's whisperers. He also continued his dark experiments in the dungeons of the Red Keep, 
as evidenced by Sir Robert Strong's presence when Cersei returns there in A Dance with Dragons. But of course, we strongly suspect that Varys was also in King's Landing and probably also working with his whisperers, as we certainly saw him utilizing a number of his little birds in the Kevin epilogue. So the question has to be asked, how much of what Kyburn is telling Cersei is accurate, and how much might be doctored information that he's inadvertently feeding her from agents who are still loyal to their former master? Expect Kyburn to be a presence, especially since we don't know to what extent he controls Robert Strong. But since that aspect of the narrative strikes us as a true horror story, we do expect that he'll meet his end at some point in a horribly poetic fashion, possibly at the hands of his creation. And now we come to a long-standing character mystery which could finally be resolved in The Winds of Winter, the disappearance of Tyrek Lannister. Tyrek was a squire to King Robert Baratheon alongside Lancel Lannister, a position where he was no doubt privy to delicate information. Besides his role as royal squire, he's also the nephew of Tywin Lannister, being the son of Tywin's brother Tiget, and a potential heir to Casterly Rock, albeit far down the pecking order. Tyrek's status as a political pawn is exemplified by his marriage to the infant Lady Ermesand Hayford in A Clash of Kings in order for the Lannisters to claim the Hayford lands. And later, in that same book, we get Tyrek's disappearance during the bread riots that saw numerous injuries and deaths. He is for a long while presumed dead. But, as Jamie says in A Feast for Crows, If he's dead, where is the body? The mob let the other corpses lie. Why not his? The response to that from Sir Lyle Craighall is, he would be of more value alive. And so, in A Feast for Crows at Darry, Jamie Lannister offers readers a crackpot theory of his own. It says, Jamie found himself wondering. Tyrek had served King Robert as a squire, side by side with Lancel. Knowledge could be more valuable than gold, more deadly than a dagger. It was Varys he thought of then, smiling and smelling of lavender. The eunuch had agents and informers all over the city. It would have been a simple matter for him to arrange to have Tyrex snatched during the confusion, provided he knew beforehand that the mob was like to riot. And Varys knew all, or so he would have us believe. So two books after Tyrex's disappearance... Jamie floats the idea that Varys orchestrated the whole thing. He wonders if Varys could be protecting some sensitive royal knowledge from Tyrek's days as a squire. Here we think George is trying to show us the right track, but perhaps we shouldn't conclude that the whole mystery would be laid out for us like this. It could be that parts of what Jamie is surmising are true, but not all. Yeah, perhaps a case of not having all the information at hand, because what Jamie doesn't know or consider is that Varys is a co-instigator of the plot to put Aegon on the throne. Whether the young man is legitimate or not isn't pertinent to this discussion, but what we should be thinking about is Tyrek's possible use in this plot. If Varys has spirited him away, 
The Aegon plot now has a legitimate Lannister pawn for use in their Game of Thrones. If Ferris's plan is to see as many dead Lannisters as there need to be in order for Aegon to ascend, then perhaps he and Illyrio see value in a young Lannister that they could later install as one of their own. And with the Lannisters in the story dropping like flies, and the promise of more golden shrouds based on the Valonqar prophecy, the sky could one day be the limit for Tyrek Lannister, in theory at least. And now, another wildcard type of character that could well play a role in the Winds of Winter King's Landing narrative is Sir Bronn of the Blackwater, now Lord of Stokeworth, following the deaths of Lady Tonda and Felice Stokeworth and Felice's husband, Balmain Birch. Bronn has been absent from the plot since A Storm of Swords, but he is mentioned often enough in Cersei's Feast chapters that we know we're not meant to forget where he's gone and what he's up to. As for that, Cersei has maintained a particular loathing for the man and hatched more than one plot to rid herself of him, the most recent of which resulted in the deaths of the entire Stokeworth family, excepting Bronn's wife, Lollis and his claiming of the castle and title. Like Lorraine Waters, he could turn out to be in league with someone or be simply acting in his own self-interest. Either way, he's enough of a focus of Cersei's and close enough to King's Landing that we're sure we haven't seen the last of him. And speaking of lands and castles changing hands, down the road from Stokeworth lies Rosby. Lord Giles Rossby has been coughing his way through the narrative since A Game of Thrones and was made Cersei's master of coin in A Feast for Crows, a testament to what she viewed as his vast wealth. When Lord Giles finally coughed his last in A Feast for Crows, the matter of the inheritance of his lands and titles became an issue for the small council since he had no direct heir. Though Cersei had once considered granting Rosby to her new favourite, Orain Waters, oh Cersei, the lure of Rosby coffers seems poised to overcome that impulse as she decides Lord Giles must have wanted Tommen to inherit his wealth. Suddenly, a mysterious character known only as the Rosby Ward, who has been mentioned often enough to seem significant, might be very important. When Felice Stokeworth meets with Cersei in A Feast for Crows, she tells her, We thought to spend the night at Rosby, but that young ward of Lord Giles refused us hospitality. Mark my word, when Giles dies, that ill-born wretch will make off with his gold. He may even try and claim the lands and lordship, though by rights, Rosby should come to us when Giles passes. My lady mother was aunt to his second wife, third cousin to Giles himself. So we learn that the mysterious Rosby Ward refuses entry to the Stokeworths, who are some kind of kin to Giles Rosby. What could he be holding against them? Felice also indicates that the Rosby estate and its riches will be up for grabs when Giles dies, and so a mini-succession struggle is being set up. As Cersei points out, Giles's wealth is considerable, quote, his horses are better dressed than most knights, a man that rich should have no problem finding gold. 
So who is the Rosby Ward and what part in the story will this succession issue play? Later on, when we hear news of Giles' passing, Circe converses with Picel on the matter of the inheritance. Here's the passage. As to Lord Giles, no doubt our father above will judge him justly. He left no children. No children of his body, but there is a ward. Not of his blood. Circe dismissed that annoyance with a flick of her hand. Giles knew of our dire need for gold. No doubt he told you of his wish to leave all his lands and wealth to Tommen. Rosby's gold would help refresh their coffers, and Rosby's lands and castle could be bestowed upon one of her own as a reward for their leal service. Circe then orders Picel to resolve the situation in her favour, despite Picel's protestations regarding the still unnamed ward. And this whole issue is not spoken of again until the small council meeting in the epilogue of Dance, when Kevin asks Picel what other business they need to address. It says, The Grand Maester consulted his papers. We should address the Rosby inheritance. Six claims have been put forth. We can settle Rosby at some later date. What else? And so the Rosby Ward mystery might be considered a tiny affair in comparison to some of the other mysteries we're all hoping the Winds of Winter will resolve. Yet it would be remiss of us to discard it on that charge. First of all, George sculpts the pertinent dialogue in a way which avoids revealing the identity of the ward, a sure sign that we have a legitimate mystery in front of us. And the final mention of the Rosby inheritance being at the end of A Dance with Dragons functions to remind us all that the resolve is coming up. And why will it be relevant is actually a mystery in itself. Regarding the identity of the ward, we appear to be looking for someone with links to the Rosby family, someone that had reason to deny Felice to their estate, and someone who might have gone missing from the story. And the prime suspect is, by fandom consensus at least, Oliver Frey. And remember, Oliver was the young man who became Rob Stark's squire after the negotiations between Catelyn and Walder Frey. In spite of his Frey lineage, he served Rob well and was a loyal asset to him, often seen beside the king in the north. His seemingly enforced absence from the Red Wedding was perhaps one of the clues that the Freys were about to turn on the Starks, and his whereabouts ever since have been a mystery. And so let's look at the criteria we laid out for the ward's identity. First of all, Oliver has indelible links to the Rosbys. While he is the 18th son of Lord Walder Frey, his mother was Bethany Rosby, giving Giles Rosby a perfectly fine reason to take him on as a ward. With no children of his own, perhaps he wanted to provide for a kinsman who had few prospects from his father's family as a younger son. Next, being so loyal to Rob, Oliver would have good reason to deny Lannister loyalists entry to Rosby, which would explain the treatment of Felice and her husband. Finally, nothing has been heard of Oliver since the Red Wedding. A character of conflicting allegiances disappeared immediately before the Red Wedding. Where would they keep this troubled young man? Rosby seems like a reasonable option. 
being two years older than Rob Stark, Oliver is by now more than capable of making major decisions such as claiming inheritance. To counter, Cersei does call the ward not of Rossby's blood, yet she could be referring to him not being of direct descent from Giles. Felice calling him ill-born also doesn't really fit Oliver, yet this probably speaks more to Felice's anger over her treatment than to the ward's actual birth. And so, overall, in spite of some small objections, Oliver Frey stands as the most likely candidate for the Rosby Ward, in our opinion. And so on to the greater question, why might this all matter? Wealth is one reason, and the prominence of Rosby as a supporter of the Lannister Baratheon cause. The loss of what Cersei covetously views as enormous wealth, and the installation of a lord who was loyal to Rob Stark, of all people, would be almost as bad as having her brother Tyrion's friend, Bronn, down the road at Stokeworth. In fact, a quick look at some of the major houses of the Crownlands reveals that many are either still with Stannis, have been decimated by the war, or are being alienated by Cersei. Considering the state of the rest of the Seven Kingdoms, the loss of the majority of the Crownlands houses could have a significant impact on Cersei's ability to maintain power in King's Landing. And so these minor mysteries, all combined, could spell some major headaches for Cersei in the Winds of Winter. We expect her immediate focus will remain on those that she sees as foes in King's Landing. In other words, she'll probably continue to be as unconcerned about Euron, Stannis, the Lords of the Vale, and the River Lords as she ever was, while being consumed with the idea of ridding herself of Marjorie Tyrell and her family. But the threat from Aegon in the Stormlands may shortly seem very real, and we think this will combine with Cersei's existing anxieties over her brother Tyrion and the Tyrells, Stannis and the Ironborn, probable conflict with Dorne, and much more, to prompt her to act in what she will see as a decisive way, but will almost certainly be destructive, given the combination of her emulation of Tywin and her lack of subtlety. And so, in the next instalment of this series, we'll get a chance to see this conflict from another side as we travel to the Stormlands and Dawn to analyse what's going on with Aegon's invasion and Doran's plotting. For now, as much of a villain and a weasel as Peter Baelish is, he does seem to have a clear understanding of Cersei, and so we're going to let him have the last word on her here. She thinks herself sly, but in truth, she is utterly predictable. Her strength rests on her beauty, birth, and riches. Only the first of those is truly her own, and it will soon desert her. I pity her then. She wants power, but has no notion what to do with it when she gets it. Thanks so much for joining us for this installment of our Winds of Winter Primer. We'll be back soon with another regular episode. And don't forget to catch our live streams where we'll discuss a lot more of the characters from this episode with guests. And speaking of guests, 
Thanks so much to the crew from A Thousand Eyes in One Podcast for the ad we used in this episode. If you haven't checked them out, find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And now, as always, it's time to pay credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for giving us characters like Cersei Lannister to discuss, and thanks to Kevin MacLeod and Kai Engel for allowing us to use their music in our production. And we'll end today, as usual, with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. Thank you to the following amazing people. Zainab, Yvonne, Woodside for Life, Whitney, Quarren Halfhand, Virginie, Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Terry, Tanner, Steve, That Shiny Bastard, Spentrails, Cern, Sophia, Shari, Sir Swift, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sebastian, Scott S., Scott Greenseer, Sam, Ryan, Richard, Rachel, Paul, PJ, Peter Pebble, Patrick, Michael M., Maester Mary, Melinda, Lady Beatrix of House Grey, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A., Matt C., Matt K., Matt L. the First, and Matt L. the Second. Thanks as well to Maria, Monaro Geek TV, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Liam, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Sir Galahoo of What, Tree Girl, Kevin, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Catherine, Judson, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion, The White Storm, Joseph, Vesivus, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, Goldie Juke, Brendan Beefish, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Yoan Longbeard, the well-read wine gobbler from Ultima Thule, Ingvild, Aiden, History of Westeros, Greg, Greer, Jeffrey, Felix, Ezra, Emily of the Eerie, Eric, Dutch Defender of the Berm, Direwolf, Dennis, Eric, Dimitri B, David, Dan S, Dan the Good, Dag Blah Blah, Sin Bobby Joe, Crimson Kate, Sir Archibald Cadogan, Convenience or Death, Clay, Clarissa, Maddie and Jessica, Christine, Christian, Christopher, Chris, Charitable Rereadings, Camille, Brian, Biloba, Arion, Nessie the Questing Beast, Oakenfist, Ando, Amanda, Alex, Aegon the Sixth, and AJ. Thanks so much, you guys, and as always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, email, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.